By the fall of 1992, six months after the news of the stock market scam had broken, thanks to Harshad Mehta's visit to the SBI, practically every investigative agency in India was looking into it. The federal agency, that is the CBI, which had arrested Harshad Mehta, was the prime among them. Also looking into it were the Income Tax Department, the Reserve Bank of India, and a commission at the highest level of government, a joint parliamentary committee, which had been constituted with high-ranking government officials and was being overlooked by the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister. But just like the lack of cooperation among investigative agencies had resulted in one of the biggest terror plots not being detected in advance, a sloppy job in terms of pulling together their intel meant that as the dust settled, India's biggest financial scam saw very few culprits indicted and charged. It did bring about some amount of regulatory change, but beyond Harshad Mehta and a few others with close ties to him, most of the participants in this racket simply moved on. One of them happened to be the largest foreign bank operating in India at that point of time. In a June 1992 cover story, the magazine India Today declared fear stocks the upper echelons of the banking sector as everyone waits for heads to roll. As it would turn out, not too many heads eventually rolled and a watershed moment in India's banking and financial sector petered off with more questions than answers. Hello and welcome to Book of Sins, a podcast from The Economist that delves into the economics of financial scams and tries to decipher how they could have taken place. I'm your host, Tariq Lasker. In Season 1, we are looking back at the 1992 stock market scam in India and the role played by Harshad Mehta, a broker with the nickname Big Bull. This is the fifth and final episode of this season, The Fallout. In the previous episodes, we have seen how Harshad Mehta was one of the participants in what turned out to be the biggest stock market scam in India. Harshad Mehta's modus operandi was nothing new. He had copied it from other brokers and banks who were busy exploiting and manipulating the system for their own gains. As the end game of the entire scam neared, as we are about to find out in this episode, things would not wrap up as neatly as most mysteries. The foreign bank we were talking about in the introduction was Citibank. By 1992, Citibank had been in India for 90 years, having established its first presence in Kolkata, then called Calcutta, in 1902. It had emerged as one of the biggest players in the money market and the bond market. Basically, the key playgrounds where all the shenanigans of diverting money into the stock market were taking place. Its house brokers were a cabal of firms who were also a bear cartel pushing against the big bull that was Harshad Mehta. Through close-knit and insensuous dealings with them, it often flouted RBI guidelines and rules in the ruthless hunt to be profitable. Citibank's entire history across the world is one of aggressive pursuit of profit and it has often fallen foul of regulators 
In India, it had found the right amount of apathy to keep itself out of the spotlight. Led by a suave J.D. Rao and senior officials such as Treasury Operations Head A.S. Tyagarajan, nothing seemed too extreme a step for Citibank. In fact, it effectively normalized the practices such as issuing fake bank receipts and manipulating client records in portfolio management schemes that other banks like the SBI would end up getting caught in the net for. It was flagged for these practices by the RBI's own probing committee, led by R. Janaki Raman, which was set up immediately after the scam broke to look into the practice of banking funds being siphoned off into the stock market. But that did not seem to affect them. Even when called to testify before the Joint Parliamentary Committee, Citibank maintained that most of what it did was standard market practice, and it did not accept any wrongdoing. Astonishingly, their gambit worked. No one at Citibank was ever formally charged with any sort of role in the scam. And senior executives such as Tyagarajan and Jerry Rao were quietly eased out by the bank. They were first transferred out of the country and then eventually left the bank for other jobs in other industries. Meanwhile, the investigators, unable to grasp the level of complexity of the entire scam and worse, unwilling to look into every player because of political patronage and other hidden interests, kept focusing back on Harshad Mehta and a few others because they made the easiest target and the low-hanging fruit who could be prosecuted. To be sure, Mehta and his allies were definitely guilty, but like a melee in the middle of a football match, some of the players involved were shown a red card, while others walked off with not even a foul called on them. So how did these banks and many others get away despite the magnitude and the extent of the scam? A lot of it comes down to diligence and procedure. Most of the banks where the illegal activity was flagged pinned the blame on some fall guy. Usually, the fall guy would be some junior employee who was painted as a rogue banker who had broken the rules by their own volition and not because this was a systemic practice to boost the bottom lines of the banks. The probing committees rarely went into much depth in terms of questioning these explanations or trying to connect the dots more intricately. They were happy with the straight lines because there was pressure from the government to show results. Harshad Mehta, for example, became an unwitting lightning rod who could be propped up to absorb the public fury. Once again, it is worth mentioning that Mehta was not innocent, but he did cop a disproportionate amount of blame in the final calculation. As Suchita Dalal and Devashish Basu write in their book about the scam, foreign banks like Citi made obscene profits by exploiting the Indian loopholes, violating guidelines and influencing policymaking in Delhi through powerful local advisory boards, but escaped virtually untouched. It's important to keep perspective of what the 1992 stock scam was all about. On the demand side, there were the ambitious brokers and eager investors looking to tame the beast that was the stock market. And on the supply side were the banks. Karl Marx had once pointed out how capital is always looking for the best rate of return and through bank credit flows to where the return is the highest. 
in the late 1980s and early 1990s, with almost 65% of their capital tied up in statutory ratios as dictated by the Reserve Bank. Banks in India were sitting on a lot of money from depositors that had to be forcibly put into the government bond market or into reserves. The banks wanted a slice of the higher returns of the stock markets. But to get there, they would have to breach the wall that separated them from the market. They could not directly put depositors' money into the stock market. But at the same time, with so many restrictions placed on them and the need to be profitable, they needed to find a way to boost their returns. As Samir Barua and Jayant Verma write in their paper on the scam from 1993, just as water finds its own level, Money also seeks out the highest levels of return after due adjustments for risk and liquidity. So how did the banks achieve that? The banks achieved it through the elaborate scam that they cultivated their brokers to carry out for them, like Harshad Mehta did for the SBI or Hiten Dalal did for Standard Chartered, as we found out in the last episode. The strict RBI regulations, while at the same time a pressure on banks to be profitable, drove them to exploit the loopholes and birth the scam. In economics, such a chain of events would be called unintended consequences. And as it turned out, the Indian market and the investor had to live with those consequences. But since then, a lot has changed and the stock market has become much more stable and safer, partially because of the jolt of 1992. That, in effect, would be the one part of the legacy of the tainted scamster that is Harshad Mehta, which everyone probably agrees on. And what about Harshad Mehta himself? He was released by the CPI in August 1992 after having been arrested in early June. But immediately after that, he was arrested again by the Enforcement Directorate for a foreign exchange violation. He had become a versatile and useful accused. Over the period of 1992 to 1993, the CBI conducted nearly 300 raids, examined over 1,000 witnesses, seized thousands of documents, looked into more than 100 bank accounts of Harshad Mehta, and finally placed the amount involved in the scam at over 4,000 crore rupees. Amazingly, a charge sheet was filed only in 1996, three years after the conclusion of their inquiry. Despite the 17-odd cases the CBI had filed against him and his co-conspirators, including his brother Ashwin, the notoriously slow Indian judicial system meant that Harshad Mehta in fact remained only an accused and a free man. In fact, he even made a comeback into the stock market while those cases were still being fought in the court. His comeback in the stock market was in the avatar of a stock market columnist. He had his own website and he was writing a column for a newspaper. It was old wine in a new bottle. 
Harshad Mehta would be in cahoots with owners of companies he would recommend through his column to gullible investors. And using front companies and other brokers, he fell back into his own old ways of manipulating the market. But this time, with no pliable banking system to provide him endless cash to continue, he was caught out, trying to manipulate the prices of three stocks, BPL, Videocon, and Sterlite. An investigation was launched by the Securities and Exchange Board of India, SEBI, the stock market regulator, who ironically had been given investigative and quasi-judicial powers as a regulator, mainly in the aftermath of the 1992 scam, when it became clear that the market cannot be properly regulated to safeguard investors against future scams if different entities were looking at different parts of it. While Seve's investigation dragged on, and with no conviction yet on the CBI's own charge sheet, Harshamata was still, quite astonishingly, a free man. That was until 1999, when finally the first conviction came in on one of the charges. Justice M.S. Rane of the Bombay High Court sentenced him to five years in prison and a fine of rupees 25,000 for mishandling a trade for Maruti Udyog Limited. Mehta would appeal the case, but the Supreme Court also upheld the judgment in 2003. That it took four years shows you how slow the whole aftermath of the scam and the punishment of the guilty proceeded. Incidentally, for his role in the market manipulation in 1998, SEBI finally banned Harshad Mehta from the stock market for life in April 2001. The very stock market that had given rocket fuel for Mehta's dreams and ambitions and had goaded his ego into believing that he was bigger than any institution, in a cruel twist of irony, had become the one place he had been permanently banished from. Towards the end of that year, he found himself in prison again, this time at the Thane prison. The CBI was still pressing on with the cases in their charge sheet, and after the conviction in the Maruti case, this time, Harshad Mehta and his brothers had been brought there to be interrogated about misappropriating shares of companies like ACC and Hindalco back in 1992. Incidentally, these were shares which had been frozen on their accounts after the scam had been discovered and they had been barred from selling them. But now, the CBI contended that they had actually gone ahead and sold some of those so-called tainted shares. While being held in prison, Harshad Mehta complained of chest pain and was taken to the hospital. But by the morning, he was dead. Back in early 1992, when he was flying high, Harshad Mehta had said in an interview, I thought I'd like to be Pied Piper. I thought I can sell dreams. But the big bull had ended his run. A shadow of his former self Harrowed for almost a decade, fighting on multiple legal fronts for both his professional and financial survival. His saga had ended on a note that would make even Shakespeare blush.
Book of Sins is written and presented by me, Tariq Laskar. The executive producer of Book of Sins is Jayant Nanjapa. Research for this episode has drawn from numerous sources, but the two main ones are the book, Scam by Suchita Dalal and Devashish Basu, and the cover story about the security scam published in India Today's June 15, 1993 show. The Pied Piper is written by Steve Duboff and Artie Confield and performed by Crispian St. Peters and appears courtesy of Decker Records. Background music is by Nero Square. If you like our podcast, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are listening. It helps the podcast to be discovered. And once again, thank you for listening. This is an Economist presentation. And Book of Sins will be back in Season 2.